0: I remember registering for classes on my first day of high school. The administrator was looking at my middle school record and, and asked me a, a few questions. And uh, he told me that he would be assigning me to the, to the honors classes. And I wasn't entirely sure what that meant, but it sounded pretty cool. And it turns out this is where the quote unquote smart kids uh, went. They were part of these honors classes. And I liked the idea of feeling smarter. I liked the idea of feeling like I was special or gifted. Well after almost failing out of high school in my freshman year, I, I lost my honors designation. I had to take summer school just to, to catch up. And I remember feeling disappointed, really disappointed. Maybe maybe I wasn't that smart, or maybe I really wasn't that gifted. What if I told you that Harambe was going to go to two services? One would be called the gifted service, and the other would be called the regular service? And what if I told you that the Harambee pastors went ahead for your benefit and pre-assigned you to one of those two services? What thoughts would be running through your head? What service do you think you would have been assigned to? What service would you have wanted to be assigned to? This morning we're going to talk on the subject of spiritual giftings, and Paul's going to spend here, starting in chapter twelve through uh, thirteen and fourteen, talking about this topic of spiritual gifts. And in particular, there's some some unhealth that exists with how the church is practicing their use of spiritual gifts. The church will see has become a place. Of the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots. The gifted and the regular. And so what what does the Bible have to say to this paradigm that 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 the Corinthian church has created? And I think sometimes even in our own churches we create this sort of dichotomy of the haves, the spiritual haves, and the spiritual have-nots. And so I've titled this message, God's Gifted Program. And as we kick off uh, our look into spiritual gifts, I want to examine three facets of spiritual gifting that will help us rightly think about spiritual gifts and what it means to be gifted or not. Uh, The first facet will be the foundation of spiritual gifting. The second will be the unity and diversity in the source of spiritual gifting. And the third is the unifying purpose of the diversity of spiritual giftings. So these three things, the foundation, the source, and the purpose, will help us understand how to think about spiritual gifts and then how to begin practicing their use. What does that look like in the context of church? So starting in verse 1, the foundation of spiritual gifting. Uh, In in verse 1, Paul switches gears to start addressing some concerns about spiritual gifts um, that the Corinthian church has probably brought to Paul in the form of a letter. And so you see verse 1, he says, uh, now concerning spiritual gifts, so Paul is basically he's received this letter for the Corinthian from the Corinthians and is now writing a letter back to the Corinthians and starting to address point by point the concerns. Now he's some of the concerns are reports that Paul's received from the Corinthian church. So someone's told him that hey. You know, they're going crazy with communion, or, or, or they're doing some really weird things sexually. And so he receives these reports and he addresses it. In some cases, he's responding to questions that they've asked. And this is one of those. Now concerning the spiritual gifts. Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. Um. We'll see, as we go forward, that the, the, the question is, why are the Corinthians asking about spiritual gifts? And we've seen that the, the, the church in Corinth has struggled with um, a spirit of pride. We saw that in the first chapter, and you can look at verses 10 through 12, where we see that the church is marked by um, division. And factions, people saying, I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, and and Paul is starting to address this this divisiveness that has at its root this pride, this this idea that I'm going to join up with the clique that has the most right things about it. Whether that's the right spiritual things, the right doctrine, the right personality. Right? They become cliquish and divided. And so here. Paul is likely addressing the ways in which the Corinthians are using spiritual gifts in a divisive manner Okay, and so the question is um, what are they unaware of? Paul starts off by saying I don't want you to be unaware other translations will read uninformed or ignorant now Paul understands the Corinthian church prides itself on its knowledge they are knowledgeable people they're well read. They listen to the best teachers. They go to all the best conferences, right? They're experts at spotting out fake news, right? This this is the people who, if they heard someone say, "Hey, I want you to, I don't want you to be unaware," their their ears would have perked up, right? Wait, wait, unaware. What are we unaware of? Tell us, Paul. What what are we not knowledgeable about? So Paul grabs their attention, and maybe there's something that we, Harambe Church, lacks knowledge about. He continues in verse 2, he says, you know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Why does Paul say this? Like, why are you saying this to us, Paul? Like, you don't need to remind us of our past. Just tell us what we need to know, and we'll be good. How many of you love it when someone brings up something shameful that used to be true of you? Right? Parents can be pretty good about that, right? You know, sometimes I think subconsciously I don't want to talk to my parents precisely because they can bring up something in the past that was shameful, that used to be true of me. Like my mom could say, Caleb, remember when you used to complain about showering? Like, sure, I do, but wait, why are you bringing this up again, Ma? Right? Our spouses can do this too. Why? Because they know us. They know our past, even including the most embarrassing weaknesses and failures that we've had. Now, commentators... On this passage aren't in full agreement on why Paul brings this up, but in my opinion it has to do with the straightforward effect of what remembering past failures can bring. That is, if we really take the time to listen and understand our past failures, it can produce a spirit and a posture of humility. If we failed in catastrophically stupid ways before, we can fail in catastrophically stupid ways today. and Paul emphasizes like you were led astray not just by idols, by mute idols, like he he emphasizes the deadness of what they were following, uh, following the 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 complete stupidity of what they were doing It's as if it's as if Paul was saying. See this Teletubby? <laughs> Remember the Teletubbies? Right? I mean, they were a cartoon, but then they had dolls and stuff. And, like, you were, he's like setting it in your midst. This is what you were, you were worshiping a Teletubby. And they don't want to be reminded. Of, we don't want to be reminded of our foolishness. But if we stop and listen, we go, oh, wait a minute, okay. All right, okay, we've done some stupid things before, right? And so Paul's grabbing their attention. So what is it that Paul wants us to know? What is it that Paul wants the Corinthians to know? He says in verse 3, Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What, what Paul is doing is laying down a foundation for what is truly spiritual. Paul is laying down a foundation for what is truly spiritual. One's background and motives could influence what you believe is spiritual or not. If, if you grew up with a Pentecostal background, what you believe is spiritual might differ from someone who grew up in a Lutheran background. Your motives can affect what you think is spiritual or not. If your motive in life as it pertains to being spiritual is so that other people will think of you as spiritual right to to lift up yourself as being the spiritual person then you might be biased towards those things you're already good at right if you're already great at serving if you're already great at administration if you're already great at teaching then it's kind of convenient for those things to be the truly spiritual things. So motive can affect and color your perception of what's spiritual. And with the Corinthians, we probably have some of both going on. We know that the Corinthian church had a pagan background, which simply means it was, it was not, uh, they were not aligned with the God of the Bible. They followed other gods. And so they had a mixture of Greco-Roman mythology that they would have had some adherence to. And, and part of the practice of those, uh, of those religions and those beliefs would have highly valued knowledge, and it would have highly valued speech. We also know that the Corinthians were becoming increasingly divisive. Right? They, they were seeking to align themselves with groups that had the best teaching, the best knowledge, They were trying to become the most spiritual. And so all of these factors, they they combined to produce a state in the church where there was rampant ignorance about what is really spiritual and what is not. In in my experience, although I believed at a young age, I really wasn't introduced to the church until I was uh, an adult, a young adult. I was going to the University of Washington, and I had some friends who invited me to a Bible study. And I thought, hey, I, I believe in Jesus. I should probably go to a Bible study. And as I entered into this world of, of, of Christian community, uh, it was of a flavor that was much more charismatic um, than anything I had seen. And, and I don't want to paint the picture as all bad. I, I don't think charismatics or Pentecostals are all bad. So please don't hear that. But I'm just sharing with you my experience. One of the things that I saw Was this thing called tongues okay, And, and I didn't know what it was it, it was people talking in a language That I didn't understand And what I was told is that In order, like when you are mature You get to be baptized by the Holy Spirit And then you get to speak in this language And they said Every Christian, this is what I was taught, every Christian should do this. And 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 I was completely open to it. I was like, you know what? If every Christian should speak in this these tongues, I want to speak in these tongues. And so I was reading through the Bible and I was praying and I was seeking and earnestly and and meeting after meeting, prayer meeting after prayer meeting, church after church, people would pray for me, and I would see others to the left and to the right of me, start speaking in tongues and falling down. But here I was, still standing, still praying, and I, was, I didn't want to make it up. Like I wasn't just going to start talking gibberish just to make them feel happy. Like I wanted it to be real. Like if God was going to start doing that in me, I wanted it to be him. And I remember one day, bunch of people were praying for me and and bless their hearts they had great intentions but they were praying for me to speak in tongues and they were speaking in tongues themselves i didn't understand what they were saying some people were were speaking english and i looked up and and i just thought you know what maybe tongues is not for everyone and i was reminded actually later on we'll find that out like it's not a secret paul Paul writes rhetorically, do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? Do all, are all apostles? And and the rhetorical answer is obviously no, not everyone is everything, okay? And so in that circle, I felt like I was the outsider. I felt like I was the less spiritual. I felt like I was junior varsity when it came to the spiritual, They didn't intend for me to feel that way, but that's the way I felt. Because there was, whether it was articulated explicitly or not, there was this sort of hierarchy set up that those who spoke in tongues had reached a level of maturity that those who didn't hadn't. And I think this is exactly what Paul is starting to address. What is the measure of what is spiritual, And Paul roots that not in the nature of a particular spiritual gift. He roots it in the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's read verse 3 again. He says, Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I don't mean just mouthing the words, Jesus is Lord. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying those who confess, those who believe that Jesus is Lord cannot do so except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is spiritual? Those who confess that Jesus is Lord. You can only do it by the Spirit. Therefore, what Paul is saying is anyone who's a believer is spiritual. That's it. That's the playing field. There's no more hierarchy. Those who believe Jesus are believing because of the Spirit of Jesus and they are filled with His Spirit and therefore are spiritual. That is the foundation to understanding the spiritual gifts. It's the confession that Jesus is Lord. And so in with that corrective, all of a sudden, it's not about which gifts you have. It's about, do you know Jesus? Like, that's the measure. Do you know Jesus? Because if you do, he's given us your, his spirit. We are spiritual on the basis of our confession and our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what truly matters. There's no junior varsity and varsity in that game. And so now that Paul has laid the foundation of the confession of Jesus for all that spiritual, he can move into the, the specific topic of understanding the spiritual gifts. And so that brings us to the second aspect that I want to examine. Namely, the unity and diversity in the source of spiritual gifting. The unity and diversity in the source of spiritual gifting now the first thing i want um to highlight is that um paul writes in a pattern of different but the same verses four through six now there are different gifts but the same spirit there are different ministries but the same lord there are different activities but the same god different but the same like repeat it three times The first thing, there's a couple of things that are interesting. And the first thing is that there's different gifts, different ministries, different activities that can be engaged in that are all spiritual. And so Paul is already beginning to broaden their understanding of what things can be considered spiritual. And he's not listing everything here yet, he's just saying there's different activities Different gifts, different ministries or services, all given by the same God that can be considered spiritual. So as we think about the spiritual gifts, I would encourage us not to just think about the things that are maybe obviously supernatural, like miracles and healings and tongues and things like that. Like we're talking about a very wide spectrum of activities, ultimately, that are empowered by the spirit for the good of everyone we're going to get into that a little bit more deeply later but he's saying there's different kinds of things but the same spirit the second interesting thing and and this is something that i didn't see before until i read read through it um, earlier this week is that there's diversity within the sameness there's diversity within the sameness and i want to show you what i mean Paul is clearly referencing the same divine source behind these gifts. However, he uses three different words to describe that divine source. Spirit, Lord, and God. Those are different words that he uses. Lord is almost always referred in the New Testament to Jesus. God in the New Testament is typically referring to either the broader sense of God, but more specifically, God the Father. How many of you have heard of the theological term Trinity? Uh, raise your hand. Most, most of you. Now, you won't find that word in Scripture, and you won't find that explicitly taught in Scripture meaning you won't find a statement that says, here is the Trinity and this is what it is. But what you do see are, like this passage, strong allusions to and very strong implicative teaching about it. In other words, we see pictures of God from different angles, and the best we can do is combine them all and say, it seems like there's something there. There's, there's some type of triune nature of God. And, and the concept is basically this. And, and I can't, uh, this is something that theologians have struggled with articulating in a very precise manna- manner since Jesus came to earth. Okay, so I don't think I'm going to do any better than that. But, but very simply, God exists as one being and three, three persons. One being, one eternal nature, three distinct persons. One being meaning that he he is he is oneness within himself. He is fully uh, he is fully whole. Sorry, he's fully he has full integrity with himself. Meaning uh, he doesn't disagree with himself. Like one part of himself doesn't say one thing and another part of himself says another. So he's unified in his whole being. But we see him exist as three different people. God the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son. And they have different roles throughout Scripture. Now, not to say they don't overlap, but one helpful way um, to maybe um, help me to sort of understand the different roles of the persons of the Trinity is to see God the Father as primarily Planning and directing, God the Spirit as primarily empowering and enabling, and God the Son as primarily performing and enacting. Right? God the Father says, in, in, or Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that God the Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's a planning activity. We see, of course, that Jesus came down and laid down his life perfectly performing the plan of the Father. And We see that even as, as Jesus, before he engaged in ministry, he was baptized by John. And it says the, the Holy Spirit, in the form like a dove, descended upon him, effectively empowering his ministry. Again, not to say that there's not overlap, but that's sort of a general way in which God acts that, that these functions expressed in the triune nature of God, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. And so, if we understand the, the triune nature of God, uh, we, we, we can also apply that to life in general. Life in general can can sort of be broken down into a Trinitarian framework. Number one, you need a plan and a direction. You need to know what to do. Uh, The questions that we have in life often are like, what activities, what work is worth doing? What plans have value in life? Once those questions are answered, you need to have the ability to do those. Like what skills, what gifts, what knowledge do I need to execute those plans? But not only do you need the plan and the ability, you need to actually do it, right? You need to perform it. And and, and oftentimes where we fall is that we don't have the focus or the, um, the motivation to do what we know we ought to do. Like we know what we ought to do. We know what it takes to get there. And yet somehow, some way, we often don't even do that. And this applies not just to material things, but spiritual things as well. What what services, what ministries are worth doing? What what has God called us to do in life? What's worth spending and giving our lives for? And 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 when we know it, how do we actually stay focused and not listen to all the things that come our way and and try to distract us. And I submit to you this morning that there is a God that can answer all of those questions. God the Father knows what's worth doing. God the Spirit gives us the ability to do those things. He empowers us. And God the Son has demonstrated what it looks like to actually lay down His life And and perfectly do them. The fundamental questions of life are rooted in the triune nature of God. The beautiful thing is that there's no one excluded from this work. In verse 6, it says, The same God produces each gift in each person. In verse 7, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person. In God's economy, everyone has a role. Every single person. And I want, I want that to sink in for us for a moment. Look around you. If you are in Christ, what Paul is saying is you have been given a gift, without exception. And, and it's a very powerful promise. And I, I don't know if you've, I've struggled before in my life with understanding, what in what way has God gifted me? And maybe you're struggling today in that same way. In what way has God gifted me, or has God gifted me? Am I just part of the regular group? And my friends, this morning I want to tell you that this is the gifted service. Right here. There is no regular service. That's what Paul's point is. There's no split between those who are gifted and those who are not. What he's saying, if if you are in Christ, you are gifted, every single one of you. God has planned to give you gifts for the work that he planned before the foundation of the world that you should walk in them. There's no reason to boast because it's the one God God is the one who gives these gifts. You don't create them yourselves. You don't work for them. You don't perform for them. You don't get right before God to get them. Comes back to the foundation. Jesus is Lord. That's an expression, a confession of belief. You do that, you're spiritual. You do that, you're part of God's plan. You do that, you believe that. God has given you a role to play in his kingdom. We are all, in Christ, part of God's gifted program. The question that's begged then is, is what is my spiritual gift? How do I find out what it is? And sorry, but I'm not going to answer that question for you today. Because that's not really Paul's aim here. Uh, he's not, he's not enlisting out these gifts that we see. One, he's not even listing out every gift possible. He's just listing out some. And he's not even defining them Really? And he's not certainly not telling you how you can figure out what you're gifted in. What he's trying to do is root us in the source, in the foundation of where those giftings come from, namely our relationship with Jesus, and then in the triune nature of who God is. And so if we understand God in his completeness, we understand that the gifts that he has are comprehensive And it's in their ability to touch every substantial part of life. And they're comprehensive, not just in their completeness, they're comprehensive in their distribution, that he gives every member of his church a gift, not just some. We don't go to the specialists who have the special spiritual giftings. We can come to each other who have all been gifted and empowered with those gifts to build us up as a body. The purpose is what Paul's after, and that's the third point. The unifying purpose of the diversity of spiritual giftings. And let me read again verse 7, the the full um, verse. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. For the common good good here paul is starting to bring the the corrective to the corinthian understanding about spiritual gifts And, and the corrective is spiritual gifts are not about you spiritual gifts are not about you any gift that's about you and you alone is not a spiritual gift Why? Because the scripture says that they're they're given by the Spirit to each person for the common good. Uh, Spiritual gifts are intended to be exercised for the benefit of of other people. It does not exclude yourself, but it must include others. Does that make sense? That's what spiritual gifts are for. And, And so often, both inside and outside of the church, people seek to use their gifts and their talents as a means of self-elevation. As a means of of putting the spotlight on themselves. Like, look at me and my spiritual gifting. Jesus talked about the the Pharisees in this way. He said uh, they, they loved the accoutrements of being a rabbi, of being a teacher. Jesus said that, the the rabbis they, they they loved the best seats in the synagogue, and they rejoiced in the respectful and admirable greetings in the marketplace. Right, a, a lot of the the Pharisees in their day they use their knowledge, they use their education, they use their training as a means to gain all of the benefits of what that. Respect would would gain them in their community. And so, what they were after was not the use of teaching and knowledge to help people know God. What they were after was the position of power and influence that they gained as a result of those gifts. And Jesus condemned them for it. In the Corinthian church, has already started down this path. And Paul is correcting theirs and our understanding that spiritual gifts are given not for the purposes of building up our own ego and making us feel special above and over someone else, um, but rather for the building up of those around us. The reality is that some of us, if you're honest, uh, really do want two services. You want a services, you want a service for the gifted and a service for the regular people and you want to take pride in being part of the gifted service. Part of when I was part of the honors class in high school, the appeal wasn't merely that I was quote unquote gifted. Part of the appeal was that I was gifted over and above someone else. You see, sometimes we feed off of feeling like we have more than the next person. We're not content unless we can one-up the person next to us. I don't know if you ever watch Saturday Night Live, but there's this skit, One-Up Penelope. And it's, it's funny because it's true, right? Everyone's been in that conversation where right you can't share something good without the person saying, oh yeah, well I've been on this trip and that one too. Or, oh, you taught a group of 10? Oh, well I just taught a group of 50. Oh, you got a promotion? Well, I just got promoted twice in the last week. And, and And it's funny because it's true. We've seen that in other people and if we're honest, we've seen that in ourselves. And it's wrong. You know, there's a need, I think, that's real that we have. And and it's as if we are seeking to justify our self-worth in relative terms. If I can demonstrate that I'm more gifted than the next person, if I have more talent, more notoriety, whatever more money more fame whatever it is that you feel justifies a person if i can ju- if i can measure that relatively to the people around me then maybe maybe i can feel good about myself maybe i can feel worthy but the truth is what god tells us is we don't have to worry about that we all fall short like it's like rel- relative sort of position in hell is not that much of a win what God did is he sent his son to die for us and in sending his son he demonstrates in the clearest way possible our worth as we are before we're able to perform before we even want to perform God chose to send his son to die for us. And in his death is the demonstration of our value. In his his death is the demonstration and proof of our worthiness. So when we think about, am I good enough? Am I valued enough? Am I loved enough? We don't need to look at spiritual giftings. We don't need to look at what talents we have. Or don't have. We don't need to look at what talents our neighbor has or doesn't have. All we need to do is look at the cross. Because God says he's done that for everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So loved the world. That's our measure of value. And so when we understand the good news that God sent Jesus to die for our sins and that demonstrates our worth, then we know that we're fully loved, fully worthy, fully valued. It's not about the gifts we have or don't have. We can be fully supportive of our brothers and sisters who've been gifted their love just as much as we are in Christ. And so as we think about spiritual gifts, Paul is trying to root us in the message of the gospel. Because that's, if we don't have that right, then we're going to go in all types of errors. We're going to value one gift over another or denigrate one people or another because we're all trying in this race, trying to be first place in the pit of hell. God is pointing us to himself. God is pointing us to his cross. God is pointing us to his love for us, his spirit, who, as as we read further in, in verse 11, he distributes to each person as he wills. Therefore, what gift someone has is because of what God chose to do. What gift you have and I have is because of what God chose to give. I have no reason to boast. No reason to put myself up over and above someone else. That was God's choice. And the beauty of it is that God says he gives everyone a gift. And we're gonna look at next week that no gift is is more valuable than another. They're all needed. As we close I have some homework and I, and I thought about and I know not every question is answered like I, I know that there are people who are probably saying I still don't know what my gift is and, and, and I think that's okay for now but we're going to look at that more closely in the coming weeks but here's the piece of homework <clears throat> what I want you to do is think about someone else that has blessed you with a gift. Not materially. I'm I'm thinking more, maybe material. Let's let's make it all inclusive. But but someone who who you feel you've, you've 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 gone to over and over again, you know what, something stands out about this person that really builds me up and lifts me up. I want you to think of 2 to 3 people over the next couple of weeks and I want you to reach out to that person and tell them tell them I see this in you and this this is I I think this is a gifting that you have and this has encouraged me in the past and I think if everyone did that I think it would begin to answer some of the questions that some of us may have as to what our gifts are. My hope is that even if it's just one person would hear something new that they haven't heard before. That they would be encouraged in the way that they didn't know they were encouraging others and helping others. And so, we'll see what God does with it. But I I think that I think that God wants us to understand the ways in which he's gifted us. But I think even more important, he wants to understand that he's he's gifted everyone with himself, first and foremost. There's no super spiritual. There's just God. And there's us, who he's loved greatly. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into communion. Father, Father, Um, I ask that you would apply this word to our hearts. Balloon. Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, Lord, uh, I I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts, Uh Father, that uh, you would help us to be rooted in in the fullness of who you are, and, and the ways in which you've revealed yourself to us, Lord, I, I pray that you would convict us where we've tried to one up each other, where we've sought to feel more special than the next person. Lord, that we would understand that our value and our worth is not found in um, our perceived gifts, but Lord, um, is found in in the demonstration of your son dying on the cross for us lord jesus would we hold that confession that jesus is lord dear to our hearts and lord would you help us to grow in our understanding of of the specific ways in which you've gifted us and help us as a body to learn what those are and to move forward in ways uh, that truly seek to use your spiritual gifts for the good of those around us Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, At this time, uh, we also uh, celebrate communion where we remember uh, the bread and the wine or juice as Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for our sins. So we do this every week. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Proclaim this until I come again. And so as you partake, if you believe in that confession that Jesus is Lord, then I invite you, uh, when you're ready, to come up and, and remember uh, what Jesus has done for us on the cross.